0: This is the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks on KQV with expert advice from CPA attorney and retirement and estate planning expert, Jim Lang, the best-selling author of Retire Secure and the Roth Revolution, Pay Taxes Once and Never Again. Now on the air and online worldwide at retiresecure.com,
1: get ready to talk (coughs) smart money. Hello and welcome to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. I'm your host, Hannah Haytainen and and of course I'm here with Jim Lang, CPA, attorney, and best-selling author of the first and second edition of Retire Secure and The Roth Revolution, Pay Taxes Once and Never Again. Jim's guest tonight is P.J. DiNuzzo, CPA, PFS. He is a nationally recognized expert in investment management who has appeared in or on numerous national and international publications and TV shows. PJ has been rated by Paladin Registry, Investor Watchdog, as a five-star advisor, scoring in the top 1% out of over 800,000 advisors in America. His firm, Denuso Investment Advisors Incorporated, has been consistently ranked as one of the top 500 firms in the country on numerous occasions by multiple national publications. On tonight's show, PJ and Jim will be discussing active versus passive investing. Many investors follow an active investing strategy where they pick their own stocks or mutual funds, but there is a growing minority who favor a passive index investment strategy. The show tonight will discuss who does better, active or passive investors, when having an investor makes a difference, and the truth behind published mutual fund performance numbers, and what are the investors' actual performance numbers. But before I turn it over to Jim, I want to remind our listeners that the show is live, so please feel free to call in with your questions for PJ. The number is 412-333-9385. Again, that is 412-333-9385. Good evening, Jim, and welcome to the show, PJ.
2: Good evening.
3: Uh, before we start, I am morally required to mention that I am not independent with PJ. Um, PJ and his company, Denuso Investment Advisors, is one of the investment managers that we use to help clients reach their financial goals. I do have a sharing arrangement with PJ and PJ Investment Advisors. I function as the trusted advisor that provides big picture strategic financial planning, Roth IRA conversion analysis, estate and tax planning, and what I would basically call the big picture items and I meet with clients at least once a year. I work hand in hand with PJ who then develops asset allocation planning and a personal financial plan and then he actually executes the investments typically, uh, not typically, I think almost solely with dimensional funds. Um, And that helps keep clients uh, starting on the right track and then the annual reviews with both me and PJ keep people on the right track and make adjustments as necessary. So anyway, welcome to the show, PJ. It's great to have you. Uh um, PJ has been been on the show yeah. before and he did a did a great job for us. And I'd like this to be a very substantive show, so I'd like I'd like everybody to get some good information about it. And I want to start with what might sound like a simple question, but I don't think it is a simple question. And I don't think very many people Really understand the essence of uh, the issue that I'm about to bring up, and before we get to the difference between a passive and an active money management strategy, let could we delve into the specifics of what a passive money manager does? So, let's say that you're working for the Vanguard S&P 500, and which is a passively managed fund. Does that mean he just sits on his butt and does nothing, and it's passive?
2: Um, Yeah, Jim, the the indexes, the S&P, for example, would would be literally, as you mentioned, a passive index. Um, Any firm that would replicate that and have an S&P 500 fund would follow the data. If they're following a a standard and Poor's S&P fund or a Russell index like the Russell 2000 would be charged with literally mimicking that index uh, for whatever 500 stocks specifically were in the index buying those 500 specific stocks, and when there's any changes, making those changes.
3: All right, well, let's let's just take a simple example. Does that mean that they would own all 500 stocks in exact proportion, or would it, since, let's say for Apple, for example, who is either maybe the first or second uh, largest company, would they own much more than, say, 1 500th of Apple? Would they actually own... proportion of Apple to the entire index?
2: Yeah, the uh, indexes, for example, the S&P is a market capitalization uh, cap weighted index. So Apple does receive a larger fraction of the pie versus the, let's say, for example, the number 500, the 500th firm in size, they would have a lot larger portion. So Apple's price movement has a lot larger effect on the S&P 500 than the 490th or fifth hundred largest firm in the index.
3: Okay, so just as an example, Apple has done very well, and I've had uh, some clients who have done quite well with Apple. What would have happened is, and, and let's forget the times that it has gone down, but let's say in recent months when Apple has gone up, basically if you own the S&P 500, that means that you would have owned an ever-increasing share of... Apple, is that correct?
2: Yes, Apple, uh, we don't buy any individual stocks, but Apple's had a very large run this year, and if a stock is larger and increasing, it, growing at a higher rate, it would represent a larger percentage of that index.
3: Okay. All right, so so let's say that, that the goal then for an index advisor, he can't just sit on his butt. I was just being a little bit facetious there. He actually has to own, and, and let's just keep using the S&P because that's probably the most popular index he has to own in proportion all, f- all 500 stocks that are part of the S&P. And if one of the stocks goes up in value, presumably he would um, own more of that, um, or if it goes down, he would own less of that.
2: Yeah, basically, yes.
3: All right, now some, some of the stocks, let's say from number 450 or 490 even 90 down, will occasionally go down and then let's say stock number 506 will go up, will he then in effect pair off the weaker ones or the ones that aren't doing as well that, well let's say 506 goes up by 10% and 498 goes down by 10% so now what used to be number 506 is now higher, will he then buy 506 in the index and make it part of the index and sell the weaker performing one that might be in the four nineties.
2: Well, in, in the index replication, the the manager following the S and P five hundred index would would own. They would not make those value decisions. Those would be made by the company that has the rights, the the patent and the rights to that index S and P, for example, or Russell would make that decision. Uh, so, well, the, well, let's even yeah. go
3: go with the S and P. Um, the S&P, in effect, would be shedding stocks and buying stocks, though. Is that right? Uh,
2: ju- just per uh, Standard & Poor's rule set, it's just a it's just like a rote, uh, mandatory, fi- uh, finite listing of those 500 stocks. And that's what they would own until S&P came out and said, we're going to reconstitute the index. We're making changes. We're dropping 10 stocks. We're adding 10 more. Then the managers would, would make those adjustments at that time
3: all right now if if you're working for with a personal account and let's say uh, whether and I know that you work more with index funds but but let's let's even assume that you were an individual stockbroker and you were trading individual stocks and let's say you bought five or ten or twenty thousand or even a hundred thousand dollars or made a sale, Th- the impact of that sale would not be all that significant to the market in other words this this one relatively small individual buy or sell is not going to have a huge impact on the price of the market. No. Will, will it, if the S&P or a, a different passively managed index, will they have an impact on the price and can they do that all in one day or do they have to announce ahead of time, hey, we plan to buy or we plan to sell?
2: Yeah, the, on, on a smaller cap, uh, Indexes the, I had mentioned the Russell 2000, that's basically the S&P 500 of small cap stocks. Uh, it's the national benchmark. And since those are smaller capitalization stocks, whenever they're added and subtracted, there's some arbitrage uh, opportunities for uh, hedge fund type organizations, and anyone uh, approaching from an arbitrage position that will bid up the price of, the, of those stocks. And there will be Uh, That's one of the things that makes our small cap management strategy uh, stand out very well because of the reconstitution challenges. For example, with the small caps, with the large caps in the S&P doesn't make quite as much difference because, again, you're talking about, you know, behemoth, uh, mega caps, very large stock, very large companies.
3: Okay. Is that trading advantage if you don't have to reconstitute per formula significant in the big scheme of things?
2: Yeah, that, that, that's a, uh, a large piece of the puzzle. Uh, the only index that we replicate is just the S&P 500. So, for example, our average portfolio has 15 indexes in it. Uh, we'll have 11 stock, uh, stock fund indexes and four bond fixed income indexes, and only one out of those 15 is just a, a standard index such as the S&P 500 because it is an excellent representation of U.S. large cap blend stocks.
3: Okay. All right, so I hope that the people get some idea that that means that a passive money manager actually has a very active role if he's trying to keep the the stocks in proportion and then having to shed and buy uh when necessary. What what how is that different from an active money manager? What does an active money
2: manager do? Well, an active money manager or or, or
3: or for that matter an active investor, which is Probably my guess is the majority of listeners here are active investors, even though they say, "Well, I just bought something and did nothing," and they don't consider themselves active investors.
2: Yeah, the, the clearest, um, the clearest example, I think, Jim, to follow along with your um, example of the S and P five hundred U.S. large cap stocks, there are managers. Most of your listeners have heard of Morningstar, the mutual fund rating agency. And if they were a U.S. large cap blend manager, which are hundreds, if not over a thousand, uh, of those large cap blend managers, that is, basically, their benchmark would be the S&P 500. So, if someone wants to just think, basically, uh, from in Pittsburghese, that they're looking at this S&P 500 and saying, uh, I have the ability to just buy 100 or 200 of these large stocks that are in the S&P and I know which ones to buy and those will allow me to have a better performance than if I bought this entire basket of stocks.
3: Okay, so let's let's say that that I'm an active money manager and that I study all the the charts and the graphs and all the information that is available and let's assume that I don't have in, inside information and I'm going to try to outperform the S&P. Now, obviously, I have costs, and I have to pass those costs on, so I'm going to have some type of management fee on top of uh, the uh, the investment results, or I should say that takes away from the investment results. But I, I'm not limited to those exact 500 stocks. I could, like you said, pick 100 of them, or I could say, well, the S&P is pretty good. Maybe I'll just look for Five or ten companies, or twenty companies that aren't so good in the S and P, and replace them with five or ten or twenty companies that are. Is that is that an example of what an, an active money manager might do?
2: Yes, that's that's an example. They're basically uh, a lot of managers have to stay around their target. So if they're a large cap manager, they are going to uh, they're going to own a, a reasonable number of stocks that are in the S and P five hundred.
3: Okay, but but hopefully. If if they are doing what, what they purport to do, they will, um, the performance will be so much better that it can actually pay for their fee and still have the person do better than the S&P after fees. Um, I mean, that is the goal of an active that's money their, manager.
2: Yeah, that's their target. The exact opposite has happened the last 10 years. Yeah, but that's their stated All right, stated we'll, we'll
3: get to that. But okay. but, but H- Hannah's jumping in her seat, and I think yeah. she's trying to tell me it's time for a break. We do
1: need to take a break. Uh, when we come back, we'll continue this conversation. And I want to remind our listeners out there that we are live. So if you have any questions for PJ or Jim, please give us a call at 412-333-9385. We'll be right back with PJ Denuso and Jim Lang on the Lang Money Hour.
0: The Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, featuring the expert advice of Pittsburgh based CPA attorney Jim Lang. More coming up on KQV AM 1410. The Lang Money Hour continues on KQV AM 1410. For all of your financial needs, turn to Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill, 412 521 2732. Let's talk more smart money.
1: Welcome back to the Lang Money Hour. This is Hannah Haytainen Kay, and I'm here with Jim Lang and PJ Denuso.
3: Well, PJ, before before the break, you, you just started to say something about um the overall performance of active versus passive money managers. Now I think historically there have been a lot more active money managers than index or passive money managers, is that right?
2: Yes, sin- significantly more.
3: All right, so so active money managers have been around for a long time, and the people out there listening, they might not consider themselves active investors, but the fact that they are choosing their own investments, whether it's be mutual funds or individual stocks or individual bonds, the fact that they are, uh, unless they invest in passive index funds, for example, I'm sure that we have a bunch of Vanguard index fund investors as listeners, but let's say that you're not a Vanguard, or for that matter, any passive index fund. You are, by default, an active investor. Is that right?
2: Uh, yes. Basically, it's a very clear, bright line, yes.
3: Okay. So, um, let's not talk about the average guy. We'll, we'll get to that later. We'll talk about how the average guy does, or even the average guy within an index fund or a mutual fund. But let's talk about the active money managers. Now, this is presumably a group, and, and frankly, by the way, um, a, as many people know, and as you know, PJ, I actually work with a couple active money managers, and they've actually done very well over the last 10 years. Um, but maybe they are the exception. How, how, if you look at, let's say, all the money managers, and of course there's gonna be some money managers that are gonna beat the passive approach, how historically have passive money managers done against active money managers?
2: Well, we like to look at Jim. Um, you know, we like to take a look at periods of five-year rolling periods and especially ten-year rolling periods. Uh, even our clients are retired when our when uh, individuals come to us for retirement income planning. We tell them that we're building at least a 30-year plan for them. So even heading into retirement, we want to have a, a 30-year time horizon. With that being said, when you start to take a look at five-year periods, and especially 10-year, for example, the most recent 10-year period of time, U.S. large-cap active managers, approximately 9 out of 10 underperformed U.S. large-cap index, such as the Russell 1000, about six, about 69 or 70%. Uh, active managers in the small cap arena underperformed the Russell 2000 small cap index. And that's generally what we'll see over, a, depending on a five to 10 year market cycle, between six, seven, eight, nine out of 10 active managers underperforming their relative benchmark index. And the thing that's challenging about it is we admit that there are active managers that outperform the indexes. Certainly, uh, we say statistically we're surprised that there aren't more of them. There really should be more. But the very challenging part in building a portfolio, and especially just in retirement, it's 30 years. Heaven forbid if you're a younger investor, if you're in your 20s or 30s, you've got a 50-, 60-year t- uh, time horizon for your investable assets. And when you take a look at how strong the probabilities are, the, the thing I tell individuals is that there are a small minority that will outperform but the very large challenge is that they do not repeat on a regular basis. So if you pick that one or two managers who outperform small caps, the one or two out of ten who outperformed the last ten years, very infrequently will they outperform again the following ten-year period, the subsequent period.
3: Well, what, what about some of the more famous guys like Peter Lynch or or Warren Buffett? Um, you know, Warren Buffett's the, the greatest investor in the world. Does Does Warren recommend most people – do active money management, or does he actually say, hey, even though I'm Warren Buffett and I might be one of the world's best investors, for most people, you're better off with passive. What, 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 what would Warren do, and how has, say, um, you know, some of the more famous funds um, done over time?
2: Yeah, uh, to answer the Warren Buffett question, we've been quoting Warren uh, since the early 1990s when he started to include in his annual report. Investment advice for the masses, so to speak. Uh, his annual report at uh, Berkshire Hathaway, the company that is his holding company for all of his investments, basically his annual report is the uh, m- most widely read report, arguably by individual investors. But he started; he he was he began to be quoted in the early 1990s as saying that the best way for institutions, which are large investors, but also individuals, to own stocks and have exposure to the stock market is through an index fund that charges low fees and low expenses.
3: All right. So e- even Warren Buffett, the arguably greatest investor in the world, says for most people they're better off with index funds. Is that right?
2: Yeah, we have, we have the quotes on our website. We have little video vignettes of Warren being interviewed at different places. You know, we have it, him saying it live, being quoted. And for him to be the, the best arguably active stock picker of our lifetimes, uh, for him to endorse uh, our core beliefs is... Uh, very impressive.
3: Okay. All right. Um, So, so basically, what you're saying is, at least over time, maybe subject to some exceptions, but you're even saying the exceptions don't stand the test of time, that the passive money managers, who are basically index investors, are doing better than the active money managers.
2: Yeah, Jim, and, and to your point, uh, part two of your question, uh, if, if I could a- answer it, is very interesting as well. If we took a look at, you had mentioned uh, Mr. Buffett and also any mutual fund managers, if we were to look back through the annals of uh, mutual fund performance and we looked at the number one longest track record of any money manager beating the stock market, That would be Mr. Bill Miller from the Lake Mason Value Trust Fund. He beat the market for a consecutive period of approximately 15 years. So this is a second-to-none record. He underperformed the market before he went on his 15-year run, approximately four or five out of six years, and then subsequently, after that 15-year run, approximately he underperformed the market again four or five out of the next six years. So when you take a look at the overall track record, even someone who had outperformed, I believe over the uh, 20, it was in the 20-plus uh, year period of time that Mr. Miller managed to fund. He ended, up, he ended up outperforming the S&P by approximately 1% per year, and for the additional volatility that he took on. Uh, and so that's one thing that we'll point out to clients, that even if you were able to pick that number one individual, I mean, his performance was approximately 1% greater than the market over approximately 25-year period of time, and that was a little needle in the haystack. Uh, It's not a grand slam or or grandiose outperformance. It's just by a small margin. And when you look at it on a risk-adjusted basis, you could actually argue it's underperformed.
3: All right. Uh, What do you mean by risk-adjusted basis? And and is it safer um, in terms of risk to own a widely diversified set of index funds or – is it safer to just own mainly uh, large company stocks? Which I, I, I have a lot of clients, um, you know, particularly estate planning clients that are not investment clients that are like dive in the wool blue chip investors and that's, that's what they like. Um, and they see that as relatively safe. Would you say that that is safe or is there ways that they could improve their safety and how do we measure safety?
2: Yeah, to answer the first part of your question, Jim, on the risk-adjusted perspective, uh, I've always used the analogy, you can't just look at one part of the equation, you just can't say, what was my return? Everything in the world of finance is what was my risk-adjusted return? How much risk did I take on for that return? And, you know, a simple uh, simple, uh, analogy or metaphor that I've used over the years is, there's a national pizza chain for years that advertised that we will deliver that pizza that you order from the time you call it in to your front door within 30 minutes. Um, I oh, well, oh, I'm not allowed to <laughs> no, say that. No, I don't it, know. That. Yeah, You're the boss. I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but they, they they stated, we'll deliver it to your door within 30 minutes. Now
3: Doesn't have to be good.
2: Yeah, but it doesn't it's Doesn't have in to have
3: minutes. mama's sauce, but it's going to be hot and it's going to be there in 30 minutes.
2: So if you take a look at that, that's one part of the equation. Now let's say, for example, that this national franchise got a phone call and they said... We've got unbelievable delivery times out in Peoria, Illinois. We've got a delivery guy out there that is just like making this whole thing stand on its head. He's getting the pizza delivered from the time that it's ordered to house is in 19 minutes. I mean, on, on the face of that, you say, you know, that's better performance. I mean, he's delivering it in 19 where the national average to try to get under is 30. So you take a ride out to Peoria, Illinois, follow him around running stop signs, going through red lights, you know, baby carriages flying up in the air, little old grandma's (laughs) diving for cover. I mean, you take a look at the risk and what he had to do and all the danger that he had to create to be able to quote-unquote beat that. So that's really the risk-adjusted example, one of the many ones I've used over the years. Uh, uh, Some people may beat it by a little bit, but when you take, I've I've referred to a scale, if if you beat it by one pound on one side of the scale, such as the scale of justice, so to speak, if you beat it by one pound on one side, but you put 10 pounds on the risk side for that one of per pound of performance, on a risk-adjusted basis, you've dramatically underperformed.
3: And, and how do you usually measure risk? What is an objective measure of risk?
2: We measure, our our most standard initial uh, measurement of risk would be, and I hate to use technical terms, but would would be referred to as a standard deviation. That is just simply if you think about when Uh, your portfolio goes up, if you think of a tabletop, and if you have a rubber band that you're holding down with one thumb on the top of the table, and you pinch it on the other end, and you pull that up, and let's say you pull it up close to the top, and that's 20%. If you were to let that rubber band go, when it snaps down below the table, however however far down it falls, if that 20%, let's say, was one standard deviation, you could start to develop models and make estimates of if your standard deviation was twice as much as the market, that's nice when the market's going up. You may go up at, at a rate approximately twice of the market. But, you know, we're concerned about the downside. We always play defense first when we're building portfolios for clients. And uh, when on our website, it's uh, very straightforward and clients observing how that ties into the portfolio.
1: Okay, we're going to take another quick break here. Um, when we come back, we'll continue this conversation. Again, I want to remind you that we are live, and if you have any questions for PJ or Jim, you can call in at 412 333 9385. We'll be right back with PJ Denuso and Jim Lang on the Lang Money Hour.
0: The Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, featuring the expert advice of Pittsburgh based CPA attorney Jim Lang. More coming up on KQV AM 1410. The Lang Money Hour continues on KQV AM 1410. For all of your financial needs, turn to Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill, 412 521 2732. Let's talk more smart money.
1: Hello there, and welcome back to the Lang Money Hour. This is Hannah Haytainen Kay, and I'm here with Jim Lang and PJ Danuzo. Gentlemen, let's get back to our interesting discussion about active versus, versus passive investing.
3: And, and I actually want to change gears a little bit and talk about some of the differences between different types of advisors. And probably the issue of, uh, I don't think we're going to have time to get to the issue of whether it makes sense to actually have an advisor, Uh, maybe we will. But one of the things that I did want to talk about is the difference between a fiduciary advisor and one that is not a fiduciary and the different levels of care that is owed owed to clients. And I think that this is not a well-understood area, in fact, we've actually had entire shows on this. And I, f- and I think it would be important for people to know what the difference is and whether you are a fiduciary advisor. Could you comment on the difference between a fiduciary advisor and somebody who's not, perhaps, a stockbroker or somebody who sells, um, well, I don't want to say anything disparaging about anybody but let's say a fiduciary advisor versus someone who is not.
2: Um, yes, Jim, there's a very clear divide. Uh, the minority of advisors in the United States opera, operate under a model which is uh, the model we operate under as a registered investment advisory firm. Uh, we're registered with the SEC in Washington, D.C. Uh, per our registration, we have a fiduciary responsibi- responsibility to our client versus the national standard, uh, which is a suitability standard. Um, we would claim, uh, and, and as you said, you could devote a whole show to this topic. That as, if, as, as we yeah, did. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, that, that a fiduciary standard is, is a much higher standard. Our standard is to act in a client's best interest, to avoid any and all conflicts of interest, and really basically to treat a client's investments as if we were investing for ourselves. And for a close family member, for our mother, or brother, or children, to have that same degree of standard, uh, a suitability, on the other hand, is just if something is would be quote unquote suitable for an in, for an individual, it could be a very aggressive investment. The individual could be 80 years old, but uh, it would be easy to meet a suitability standard to say, well, that was suitable. It's a lot lower standard than a fiduciary standard.
3: All right, and and, and just in the news recently, and I don't want to repeat the name of the firm but somebody who had resigned from the firm had had kind of written an open letter saying that that the advisors of the firm were not acting in the best interest of the client. And if I understand what you're saying is that you not only have a moral, by the way, I know you to be a, a, a good, righteous uh, man, and I mean that in the, in the best way, um, but even if you were not, that you would actually not only have a moral but a legal Legal obligation yeah and, and by the way that is that is the same for me so if we tell you if we make a recommendation for an investment or in my case sometimes an estate plan or something else i'm not only morally required to say what i believe is in your best interest i'm actually legally required to and if i don't i i can be called to the carpet on that um... so You talked a little bit about index funds, and and we used the example of S&P 500, and I also mentioned Vanguard, because Vanguard is probably the most famous set of index funds. And I do have a number of, let's call it -it do-it-yourself investors who actually do utilize uh, Vanguard as uh, a choice of index funds. Um, And I know, for example, in your professional history that you have at one time worked with Vanguard funds, Um, Um, but but now you do not, is that right? Now you work with a set of funds called dimensional funds.
2: um, Yes, dimensional, DFA. Uh, When I started our practice, when I uh, launched our practice in 1989, initially the best indexes that I had available were Vanguard funds and then subsequent to that in the early 1990s, dimensional, which also goes by DFA, uh, DFA funds, which are institutional mutual funds, uh, we made the grade, so to speak, and were allowed in the door. We were one of the first 100 uh, DFA advisors approved in the United States, and since then, we've been building uh, portfolios utilizing all the DFA index funds.
3: All right, so DFA is an index fund. Now, how would now? I think that you that you mentioned that, for example, before that, the DFA had a a small cap fund that had us that had different criteria. Than let's say the Russell 2000. How how would how would you construct or what is the difference between a DFA fund and a comparable index fund?
2: Yes, the um, just a, a real brief um, ex- genealogy uh, example uh, examination rather would be in store, and I'll make it as brief as possible. The the research for all the indexing for efficient market theory. Primarily, if we could look at one uh, point at the epicenter in the United States, would be at the University of Chicago Graduate Business School. There was a lot of research performed in the 1950s and 1960s. And in the 1960s, it became obvious, at least to Professor Fama, who has taught at the Graduate Business School for 30, I think going on 40-some years, that the market was highly efficient. Not perfect, but highly efficient. So the indexes, uh, the individuals who founded DFA, Dimensional Fund Advisors, were all out of the University of Chicago. They've had a couple, anywhere from two to three Nobel Prize winners in their board of directors pretty much since day one. So one of the questions we get asked the most often is, you know, how are these indexes doing better than Vanguard or how are they outperforming on a total portfolio basis? So if we consider that DFA is arguably the largest index-only manager in the United States, mutual fund index-only manager... Uh, Vanguard, although they have a lot of indexes, they're approximately half active and half uh passive, half indexes.
3: All right. So even even, even Vanguard doesn't go by the pure passive index creed then, is that right? They yeah. they offer both passive and active management funds.
2: Yes, they have both. Okay. Yeah, and so they're and I just tell I tell folks, you know, I just think some things just intuitively or pragmatically when you look at it and say, you know, think of any organization. It could be a not for profit organization you're involved with, or it could be the company that you work at and you go into the, you know, one of the meeting rooms and you're splitting up the budget, I mean, if all the budget for moving the company organization forward is being spent in one direction, or if the research and uh, development budget is being bifurcated and split 50% going to the right, 50% going to the left, half going active, half going passive, I just don't think from a common sense perspective that you're going to be as efficient. All DFA has done from day one is manage indexes. Uh, they have indexes covering the planet Earth, accessing all the areas that you would arguably want to have access to.
3: Okay, and, and and you mentioned that there's some pretty bright guys on the board in doing this.
2: Yeah, we refer to it at our firm as standing on the shoulders of giants. We look sort of tall, but actually <laughs> we're standing on the shoulders of giants. These are really mental giants. You take a look at the portfolios. I mean, Professor Fama, in the early 1960s, when he wrote the, initial, uh, the, the seminal uh, paper on efficient market theory, Efficient market hypothesis, he um, was looked at a little bit of like heresy, like he was a little bit out there, so to speak, to put it mildly. Uh, subsequently, trillions of dollars, uh, and that's trillions with a T as in Thomas, trillions of dollars by the smartest portfolio managers on earth, institutions, foundations, endowments, major pension plans, etc., have moved from the active side over to the passive index. Uh, strategy in managing trillions of dollars within their portfolios
3: all right and earlier you had said that the indexes have done better than the active money managers and you're saying now dimensional funds are doing even better than other passively managed funds is that correct
2: yes on average that is the track record that they've achieved it's basically one step above the typical indexing strategy
3: all right is that because they define what companies they want to buy. So they're still not actively saying, hey, I want IBM and let's sell Apple. They are saying, well, we're going to maybe have a slightly different definition of say, international small cap than perhaps a a different passive manager, is that right?
2: Yes, we we would argue that they have the tightest uh, and most refined definition of all the stocks in each of their index baskets that they manage.
3: All right. And if you had a well-diversified portfolio, I think you mentioned 10 or 15 index funds, how many companies roughly would you have some representation of?
2: Our typical portfolio with the 15 index asset classes, generally 11 on the stock side and four on the bond side, we have a fractional ownership of over 18,000 stocks in over 40 countries on earth. Uh, that, that, on that's, average.
3: That sounds pretty, pretty good to me. Pretty good coverage. <laughs> um, I, I think Hannah is uh, getting back to me. It's yeah, time for a break. We're so going so to have to take want, another break. Why don't we
1: take one? Um, when we come back, we will continue this conversation. And there's about 10, 12 minutes left um, for listeners to call in. So if you have a question for PJ or Jim, please give us a call at 412-333-9385. We'll be right back with PJ Denuso and Jim Lang on the Lang Money Hour.
0: The Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, featuring the expert advice of Pittsburgh based CPA attorney Jim Lang. More coming up on KQV AM 1410. The Lang Money Hour continues on KQV AM 1410. For all of your financial needs, turn to Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill, 412 521 2732. Let's talk more
1: smart money. Hello there, and welcome back to the Lang Money Hour. This is Hannah Haytain and Kay, and I'm here with Jim Lang and P.J. DeNuzzo. Um, P.J., before we before we
3: wrap up, I want to bring the human element into this because right now we're talking about a lot of numbers, and, and I guess we'll actually finish up. By, I'll ask you what the DFA performance has been. But we have been talking about numbers and kind of taking the human, and we really haven't examined the human element. How do people in the real world do let's say that that you buy whether it's uh, a mutual fund or individual stocks but even let's take a mutual fund how would the average mutual fund investor do compared to the average mutual fund that he invests in
2: uh yes jim that's um uh to the credit of a company uh, by the name of dalbar d-a-l-b-a-r out of boston uh, that's the exact type of research that they do, is tracking individuals from when they purchased a mutual fund to when they sold it. Uh, before they started doing the research, most people just assumed that if you owned a mutual fund and it did 10% a year, that everybody did 10% who owned the fund. But lo and behold, uh, Dahlbar's research over the last 20 years indicates that the average individual who owns... Uh, has owned the average stock mutual fund in the United States, has only done, I believe it's in the low 40s, uh, 41 42% of the return of that fund is what they've actually achieved. So in in layman's terms, if that mutual fund returned 10%, their return was approximately 4.2%. So behavioral science and the emotions of investing causes the average individual to dramatically underperform.
3: Is is that because people, in effect, get nervous when the market is low and they sell when it's low and they get euphoric when the market's high and that's when they go in? So they basically buy high and sell low?
2: Yes, they basically do the exact opposite of what you'd like to. And surprisingly, this happens over and over. It's just not all, well, you know, you can point back to 2001 and 2002 or even 2008 and 2009 Uh, But even in other periods when there's other cycles going on, uh, individuals will get out of a fund. uh, It may go down 10% in January or February. Then that fund recovers and it ends up the year up 10 or 15%. But that individual actually lost 10% because they sold their position after the first couple months of the year. Uh, Basically, individuals uh, consistently come to the party late and leave the party early. And as you just mentioned a moment ago, Tend to buy when the market's high, and they sell when the market's low, over and over.
3: And I assume that that would be an argument in favor of having a money manager. Yes, you
2: know, so that would be in favor of having a money manager. A lot of times, the way that I explain it, because people sometimes you refer to it as you know, we refer to ourselves as wealth managers. You hear people talk about financial advisors. I simply refer to it as having a financial coach. Literally, just having a coach. And most of my clients, whether they've tried to uh, started to learn they're trying to learn the guitar or a saxophone or taking singing lessons they're working out at the gym most individuals will find that they do better with a professional coach in the area that they're trying to improve
3: okay and let's let, let, let's let's get down to the bottom line the bottom line ultimately is how has if 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 people are interested and actually before before i wrap up I should also um, ask you for the name of your company and your contact information in the event that people were interested in talking with you.
2: Yeah, our contact uh, our contact information is Denuso Investment Advisors. Uh, Our home office. And how
3: do you spell Denuso?
2: Okay, yeah, Denuso is D, I capital N -N 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 as in Navajo, U. Z as in zebra, Z as in zebra, O, oh, Denuso. Okay. And then the easiest way is just our website is just denuso.com. Uh Actually, I'll mention also, Jim, we're in the process of changing our name. Since we've grown into the largest pure indexing manager, uh, we build more all-indexed mutual fund-managed portfolios of anybody else in Pittsburgh. Direction in the process of changing our name to Denuso Index Advisors Inc. So it's gonna be oh, a lot I, easier. I, I didn't even know that. Yeah, one. that's hot off the press. Yeah, we just we just were on the phone with the SEC today with the paperwork. So yeah, so Denuso it will be soon be Denuso Index Advisor. But if you just go to Denuso dot com, you'll be able to take a look at a lot of the items that Jim was talking about this evening from the portfolios, because it's really tough talking about numbers on the air, but the uh, portfolios and performance and then also we post a lot of articles on here. Uh, individuals are Interested to find a lot of uh, quotes from National uh, Wall Street Journal, Kiplinger's, Money Magazine, et cetera, talking favorably about strategic asset allocation and, and indexing.
3: And what is your telephone number in the event somebody who just wanted sure, to give you a call? Yeah,
2: phone number to toll free line is 877 728 6564. One more time, please. 877 728 6564. And if anyone would call, if they could please, uh, let us know that they did hear us on the Jim Lang Money Hour.
3: I I appreciate that, and I have to uh, repeat what I said at the beginning, which is I am literally morally required to mention that I am not independent to PJ, that um, PJ and I do work together, um, and if you come uh, to PJ through me, that we have a fee-sharing agreement, and that I trust I function as a trusted advisor that provides big-picture strategic advice, uh, Roth IRA conversion analysis, estate and tax planning, and then PJ does the asset allocation through uh, dimensional funds that we had mentioned and uh, makes sure the clients stick, stay on track. And then with about two minutes left, PJ, can you tell us what the big drum roll is, which is, okay, how has DFA done? against it, some other benchmark, let's say, over a 10-year period. And this, is, this, this, by the way, is after subtracting Our fees. fees and right. And if, and, if, and if people saw us together, that would be the same fee. So yes. we're, we're splitting one fee. It's not like we're adding one fee on it top of the It doesn't cost other. a penny more
2: now. Um, for example, uh, Jim, our 100% stock portfolio over the last decade of the all uh, DFA index has done uh, about 6.8%. The S&P 500 is a little bit over 2.9. We would not generally project that much outperformance, but it has averaged from 1% to 2% or above over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years.
3: Well, and and that's – it has outperformed after paying your fee.
2: Yes, net of all fees and expenses.
3: Well, that sounds pretty impressive.
1: Okay, I just want to really thank you, PJ, for being with us tonight and offering your insights. And I also want to thank our listeners for joining us for another Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. If you want to reach PJ, again, his number is 877-728-6564. And you can access our vast library of past shows on our website at www.paytaxeslater.com. And as always, you can catch a rebroadcast of this show at 9.05 a.m., on Sunday morning right here on KQV, join us at 7:05 p.m. on April 4th when our special guest will be best-selling author Paul Merriman.
0: Thanks for listening to The Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. Check out the show archives and listen on demand anytime at retiresecure.com. KQV listeners can receive free tickets to Jim Lang's Pittsburgh area workshops and more. Call the Lang Financial Group at 412 521 2732. That's 412 521 2732. And reserve your seats and meet Jim Lang in person. Again, that's 412 521 2732.